I'm so excited to introduce our guest on this episode, Jennifer McClure. She's the CEO of Disrupt HR and Unbrittle Talent LLC, a consulting and advisory firm providing services to clients in the areas of keynote speaking, leadership, executive communication skills, and talent strategy. On this episode with Jennifer, we talk about an evolving idea of disruption and what feels like an exhaustively disruptive 2020 and 2021. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to Humanly Possible. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, I am so excited to have you on, uh, mainly because you're just a brilliant human being and because you and I met uh, at a conference. Gosh, how many years has it been? (laughs) I feel like it's been forever. Yeah, we were chatting before this that 2020 is the year that didn't happen, but uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, we were at the Work Human Conference, and I think we were just uh, grabbing lunch, and we struck up some conversation, and um, I know you have done a lot of fantastic work in the HR community, and this season of Humanly Possible is all around uh, disruption in HR, and I thought this is a perfect time to kind of take stock, (laughs) given where we are Uh, the landscape right now. So why don't you give everybody an introduction about who you are, Jennifer, and then um, what makes you human? Oh, I wasn't prepared for the question about what makes me human. Wow, that could take a while um, to think about, not to answer. (laughs) So who am I? What am I about? I am a, um, a lover of the workplace and people and leadership uh, to make those people in workplaces better and have developed that love over uh, decades, we'll just say that now, of a career focused around people and leadership. Started as an HR leader in a small manufacturing plant many, many years ago. Really chose that profession for no logical reason. Uh, I had never met, it was called personnel back then, I had never met a personnel leader. Um, I had only had one job in a grocery store on a a country road and <laughs> the store manager hired me. So I don't know where personnel came from in my brain, but when I had to pick uh, a chosen career when I was a junior in high school or college, um, personnel came to mind, HR came to mind because I felt like that was the position in the organization where I would be able to have the most influence and impact. Who knows who put that thought in my brain or how I got there, uh, but I felt like, well, you don't, you know, you're not necessarily on a small team only, only, or you're not leading just mm-hmm. a small group of people. You have to interface with all employees in the organization. And so I felt like that was a good place to be. And looking back, I think that was a really wise decision that I have no idea how it was informed um, because you do, I believe in human resources or the people side of the business have that opportunity to have such great impact. And so mm-hmm over you know, almost 20 years of leadership and executive roles in HR and recruiting in the corporate world, had the opportunity to learn that, develop that, make a lot of mistakes, do a lot of things wrong, and then take all of that experience. So I did a, a stint in executive search as well and got an executive coaching certification after I left the corporate world. Mm-hmm. But then in 2010, started my own business as a professional speaker and trainer. Um, really kind of sharing those experiences, what I've learned and what I believe makes leaders of impact out there in the world and have just had a blast doing that since 2010. Um, 
last year, 2020 was not as, as fun as it could have been in that regard, uh, because the opportunity to be out at events and to teach mm. and to connect and to learn from others wasn't there in the in-person sense. Of course, we did do some virtual things, but um, you know, finding opportunities to share with people, to learn and to help them grow and to grow myself is really a passion. And my favorite topics to talk about are strategic leadership, personal branding, and speaking and communication skills. Awesome. Well, I think you already told us a little bit about what makes you human, and that's making a lot of mistakes, learning, iterating, <laughs> doing it all over that. again. Yes, yes. <laughs> I can tell you what not to do because I've done it wrong. That's a good example of being human. <laughs> yes. And it's, it, it is, it is a part of our being and, um, and, you know, design thinking, when you think about how we, how we go through, um, this field is we, we do try and we iterate and we disrupt, which is kind of, um, the, the topic today. Uh, and I'm feeling a little rebellious because, you know, I, I, you and I have had a conversations about HR and, and I have some pretty out there perspectives, you know, things like, how do we work HR out of a job? Uh, you know, create such great leaders that um, that HR isn't even needed. You know, like I've got these big, like crazy, insane ideas. But can you tell us a little bit more about disrupt HR, uh, the, the community you've created? Um, let's start there, and then I have another question for you. <laughs> Sure. Well, yeah, lots of thoughts around disruption and getting rid of HR. Um, but Disrupt HR, the organization, uh, was started in 2013 here in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I live. Um, again, by kind of taking my own medicine. I was mm. a couple of years into my own business at the time and had really um, leaned heavily on building relationships and both what, how I could serve people and then also having the benefit of them looking for ways to help me in my business as well. And met a gentleman at uh, our local HR association meeting who he looked out of place. He was, you know, like the kid in the cafeteria holding the tray with nowhere to sit. And, you know, not that you were that, but it was kind of like, I, I don't know if you were sitting at a table by yourself or I, I think was, it was but, the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a massive introvert, but I don't know some of those situations I turn into. I think it's more of the I want to help people in me. Um, so Chris was there and I thought, you know, he, he doesn't look like uh, he belongs here. So uh, he, he was a, a new HR tech company founder, uh, not from the HR world, but smartly had really felt like he needed to get in touch with people that would be his customers and what their needs were. And so he showed up at an HR association meeting. And I guess I adopted him, um, at least that day, you know, make, I don't know, make both of us feel better to engage in conversation. And, and he asked me if, you know, I would be willing to kind of advise him as he was building this new company. And I agreed to do that. And so we would meet periodically to have lunch and, you know, he'd share with me what was happening at his company it was called Black Book HR at the time. It's called Talmetrics now. He, he moved on from that, but I believe it's now Talmetrics. Um, and at one of those luncheons, he turned the tables and he said, you know, what's, what's new with you? And I said, you know, I'd been a speaker again for about three years at that point. And at the time, you know, I might be speaking at 40 to 60 often HR recruiting conferences around the world, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I love, love, want to get back to doing that, by the way, universe. Um, <laughs> yes, put it out there. And, you know, so 
I'm out there at a lot of conferences and I'm seeing a lot of the same people on stages or hearing a lot of the same topics, particularly in HR conference. There's the lawyer speech, there's the compliance speech, there's the FMLA speech, there's the, at the time, don't get on social media speech, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and the reality is I realized my experience being at that many conferences and events was not the typical attendee experience where they are probably at one conference a year. And I also understand the conference organizers, they have to give the people what they want for all the people out there complaining that if you go to an HR conference, it's about compliance and FMLA and the lawyers. When they get their feedback forms back, they get feedback that says we need more lawyers and compliance, <laughs> partly because people are looking for those certification credits and partly because, again, it's the one outside learning opportunity that many people go to a year and that's the learning they need. So I get that. But when I met with Chris and he said, what are you thinking about? What would you like to do you know, in the near future or future? And I said, you know, I've been to all these conferences and events. I see a lot of the same people. I hear a lot of the same topics. And as long as it's me, that's okay. But <laughs> um, really, I'd like to someday hold a, a conference or an event here in my hometown in Cincinnati. And I've met a lot of cool people and invite some of those cool people, but also reach out to some people who maybe I've never thought about giving a talk on a stage, but I know they have something to say or to invite people to share about messages that are not typically being heard on conference stages around the world. And that was just me throwing out ideas, which is something that I do. Um, they don't often go anywhere, but thankfully Chris is an entrepreneur at heart and, and he is the type that uh, likes to pick up ideas and run with them. And so he was really excited about that idea and in our lunch conversation and I just kind of indulged his excitement and left there thinking, you know, someday, someday I'll do that. Um, and he reached back out to me after that and said, you know, he, he was excited about it. He went home and talked with his team and they would like to help make this a thing and Black Book could be a sponsor, which would get them to interact with more people in their orbit. Mm. Um, and I was like, cool, cool, fine. Uh, <laughs> and, and he had an idea for a framework because he was the community organizer for Ignite events at the time. And so why don't we use the Ignite framework? We'll call it Disrupt. We've already done some mock-ups. And I was like, this is great. You guys are doing all the work. Uh, <laughs> my idea in my brain. <laughs> and I'll just show up. Right. Um, and so Chris will always, Chris Ostich is his name, O-S-T-O-I-H, O-S-T-O-I-C-H. Um, and again, he's moved on now to another company that he co-founded that's not in the HR tech space, but still very involved with Disrupt HR. So he always will be the founder because he actually mm -hmm. made it a thing. Um, and we did it here in Cincinnati in December 2013, invited all kinds of people from different backgrounds to give talks about the workplace. So not about compliance or FMLA or, or anything HR recruiting in particular. And there were a lot of great perspectives shared. We had almost 300 people come. It was at a historic brewery. We had fun. We had free beer and people loved it. Um, and so after that, you know, it was like, when are we going to do it again? And we also had people reaching out saying, wow, we saw a lot of the social media posts or then we put the videos online and they're like, we'd like to do this here. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to 2020, uh, March, 2020, we had 157, I believe it was licensed cities in almost 40 countries around the world. Over 5,000 Disrupt HR talks have been given. The videos are out there on our website at disrupthr.co. And this idea blossomed into, um, you know, live events. We, we've chosen not to over the last year to, to take the 
the virtual Disrupt HR format online. Many of our communities are still doing things digitally. Mm -hmm. um, but we really believe that live event has some magic to it. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that it is an opportunity for people to try their hand at speaking that maybe never have done so or to share their idea and to not have to worry about it's a whole other ball game to be a good speaker on a Zoom call or at a digital conference. Um, so we're looking forward to live events again because over the last seven or eight years, we've seen people take ideas that have either sprung out from there, just like, you know, Disrupt HR sprung from a conversation between Chris and I, either the idea that someone began to develop by sharing it on stage or a connection that they made or an idea they heard from stage. And now many people have started their own businesses, changed careers, made relationships that have been really critical. And it's just been wonderful to watch it grow. That's an amazing, amazing story. Um, and yeah, it, it is this idea of challenging, I think, you know, I think speaking and, and challenging and talking, like all of that does have magic to it, especially when it's live. Yeah. Um, but what has the community, I mean, what are you, I mean, you have your own practice too. So you're in this, in this day in and day out. Um, what needs to be disrupted in HR, do you think? And is it much different now that we've been through COVID and a pandemic? What are some yeah. themes you're seeing? Well, I'll start with this not a theme. It's kind of like where I'm at and where I think mm -hmm. from, again, some of I have, uh, I, I do executive coaching as well. And many of my clients are senior HR leaders. And, and what I've been hearing from them is, um, you know, let's say pre-March 2020, uh, you know, when the world seemed like everyone <laughs> would never have to deal with something like this. Right. I had a keynote that was around disrupting HR. People were reaching out constantly about, you know, how can I be more disruptive in my workplace, in my environment? You know, can you come help us think more disruptively? We really need to shake things up. Yeah. Here I am a year later and even probably a couple months in and I'm like, I don't know if anybody ever wants to hear the word disruption mm. ever again. <laughs> yeah. These were like back to basics. Yeah, it's like, you know, things like new normal, pivot, unprecedented, disrupt, or, or words that I you might just remove them from the dictionary because I don't know if people want to hear them again, including me. So that disrupt HR keynote will either be uh, restructured or I don't know if anybody's ever called me up and go, can you come in and talk about disrupting us again? <laughs> so the theme to get to your question, I think that I, I am in the headspace. And I think, again, a lot of the people that I talk to are as okay, we've been disrupted. Mm. Uh, it wasn't a choice. Uh, there have been some good things that have come out of that. And we learned a lot through the mistakes we made or the things that we still haven't gotten right. So let's not maybe go out and look for disruption. <laughs> some people are saying that. Let's figure out how to really capture what mm. we learned over the last year and to systemize that and to make it where we can really benefit from the disruption that has occurred. Mm -hmm. So a disruption, you know, that's obvious to think about. Many people got sent over, at, you know, to work from home overnight. Well, that was a disruption in and of itself that before, if you'd asked the CEOs and the leaders of all the companies, you know, was that an option? A, a, a majority of them would have said no, you know, either for some or all of their employees, no working from home. Right. Now we've seen that it can be done, and at least the stats show us that for a lot of organizations, productivity's increased. You know, I, I have an HR roundtable that's senior HR leaders, and last 
meeting we had last week, virtual, of course, uh, every single one of them said their results were better in 2020. And it wasn't because their product or service was something that took advantage of COVID. Mm -hmm. It was the more productive workforce getting focused on what really was, you know, what needed to be done to serve their customers during a, a really challenging time for everyone. So, you know, it, it would be hard to argue that what we're doing now is not working in a lot of ways, mm. but what can we glean from that and then take into the future, I think is where people are really thinking now as we see hope and a light at the tunnel with the vaccine and, you know, the idea of being mm. able to come back together safely again. So can we take what we've learned and not just say, and I'm sure some companies will do it, unfortunately, just say, okay, everybody back to the office, back to the way things were before. Let's go back to precedented times. Um, <laughs> companies that do that and some of those companies may still be successful. But I, my hope is, and I believe what will happen is a lot more will are already looking at, especially since we're kind of in a, a beginning of a transition phase again, not such a sudden transition, I hope, um, well, I don't know if everybody had a vaccine tomorrow and we could all be, you know, go out to dinner with friends. I'll take that sudden transition. Yeah. Uh, but that we're starting to think about what were the learnings that we take away from this past 12 months? What worked really well? What can we systemize and implement if we haven't already? And then what can we build on? So the disruption of the future, I think, is building on the successes of the past, the learnings from the past. And then and when it's appropriate to begin to, as I encourage people pre-March 2020, disruption wasn't just about go in and like turn the basket upside down and throw things in the air. It's really about identifying opportunities for disruption mm -hmm. and then logically approaching that. So sitting down and saying, what would we do if we couldn't fail? You know, what would we change if it didn't matter? who had to do it or what the budget was and really kind of do that blue sky thinking or even what's the biggest problem that we're facing that we think can't be done a different way. So it's still being intentional about disruption and then approaching it by trying things, creating pilot programs. You know, it's that minimum viable product, put something out there, build, iterate, grow, change. I think that was always disruption, but people's perception of disruption was this mass chaos and that out of that great things happened. And sometimes that does happen. But I believe the disruption of the future is back to the precedented times of where's an opportunity to disrupt. And often that's, again, something that we've done the same way and it works well. You know, we've always done it this way. And we don't have any problems with it. You know, that's an opportunity to disrupt, you know, because it could be better. Mm. Um, you know, you could change something that could make it exponentially better. And so that's the challenge now for HR is to take what we've learned and then take that kind of 360 approach and say, with what we've learned and where we are now, where are future opportunities to planfully disrupt, if that's a phrase. Yes. And, you know, to, to your point, I think there is a bit of getting back to basics. Um, you know, we really saw what, uh, I won't even call it disruption because I don't want to mix the two up, <laughs> but I mean, like crisis, right? We saw what cri forced crisis has, has caused on our, our bodies, our minds, our, you know, our whole well-being. Um, so I agree with you. I don't think disruption, um, the, the, next, the next phase of disruption is really about finding opportunities. And so what do you think, um, 
what kind of capabilities does HR need to have in this next phase? So I, I, I constantly think about like, I, I feel like we're kind of in a state of awakening a little bit about, you know, more human-centered workplaces. I think COVID has brought some light to that. Um, feeling things like inclusivity, feelings of belonging, like these are topics that existed. Probably you and I have been talking about for a very long time, our entire mm -hmm. careers, but now it's kind of coming to the surface. So, um, so I continue to think about like, how are we prepping this next generation of HR professionals to take us forward, to, you know, get us to the next step? What are some capabilities, I guess, that current people in HR or people who are thinking about going into HR early career, what are going to be those future capabilities that we need? Human-centered workplaces, I think, is, is, is where it kind of starts. If you look at, at least in my lifetime, the evolution of HR, when I joined, as I said, it was personnel because it was very administrative focused. I'm sure there were HR leaders or personnel leaders that maybe some bleeding edge companies, even back in you know the early 80s, mm -hmm. who were strategic and out there really talking about total alignment with goals and objectives. But I'd say it's less than there are today. You know, in general, it was if you were hired into personnel, it was about payroll, it was about policies and procedures, it was about the hiring and the firing, it was about the handbook. And that still all falls under HR purview, but it was a lot more risk management focused, I think. And I think the field of human resources evolved from that. Again, though, there are still people who prefer to do that and there are still jobs that require that. So we didn't necessarily leave that behind, mm -hmm. but it evolved into more of that business partner. You know, how can I partner with the people, the leaders in the organizations to ensure that they have what they need in order to be successful? And then it kind of evolved again to where there was more and more of a focus on strategic HR. You know, how can HR have that? I'm going to say it, seat at the table. Uh, you know, how can we be leading and where the business is going and aligning the people's strategies with that? And I think all of those pieces of HR are still with us, but I do think HR has much more of an opportunity be, to be that strategic leader now. Mm. But the challenge for all of us going into that next evolution is how do we take that administrative expertise, that business partnership, that strategic focus, but yet make sure that we are thinking about the humans in the workplace mm -hmm. so that it's not just about goals and objectives. It's not just about policies and procedures. It's not just about aligning strategies and workforce planning and all the, the really critical things that HR does, but making sure that we are in large and small organizations considering each of the humans that work there, considering well-being as be, being a strategic and beneficial thing to the organization. Again, taking what we've learned over the last 12 months where we, we dropped everybody in their homes, we had people working with their kids in the background homeschooling and the dog running around and all the things that went with that. And a few months into that, we went, wow, people are exhausted and tired and, you know, we're doing too many Zoom meetings a day now. And so let's have a day where it's uh, Zoom meeting free or camera optional or, you know, we started doing things to protect our employees' well-being. Mm because either we were seeing it or we were hearing that that's something that's happening. When we go back to the workplace and whatever you know, hybrid model that might be, let's not forget that. We recognize that people were human. You know, They had children at home that we had not seen or heard about before because we don't talk about those things in the workplace. You know? 
<laughs> or, you know, we acknowledge they have children, but we didn't realize some of the stresses that that might put on them as a professional. Maybe they're a single parent, or even if they're, you know, a, a two-parent household or a multi-parent household, mm -hmm. there are still things that are going on out in the world that impact our employees from their lives outside of work. And I think we've had a window into that over the last year. So how can we bring that into the workplace? So sure, you know, like we, any, it's not just HR that likes to do programs, but you know, we are pretty good at it though. But <laughs> so uh, if it's a well-being program or a self-care program or, you know, more check-ins, whatever we want to systemize, um, but to find ways to truly develop empathetic leaders, Mm. And not everybody has that innate skill. I'd say very few people are innately empathetic. And even those people that are innately empathetic have to develop their expertise with their empathy. You know, because if you just go around being empathetic to everybody, you're not going to be productive. It's like, right. how, do I, a balance. <laughs> how do I wisely use this, uh, you know, very effective tool? But for those leaders that aren't naturally wired to be empathetic, how can we teach them? Uh, minimal skills? How can we encourage them or even maybe incentivize them to do things that help their employees feel more connected to them and to the workplace? That's always been, you know, a lot of things have changed in the last year and over time and HR has evolved, but it's always been a key, key connection point to any organization is for an employee to feel, feel appreciated and valued. Mm -hmm. And the main focal point of that is their leader. And I've long championed that HR really help those individual contributor leaders with, you know, three people or 30 people that report to them to be better at showing their employees appreciation and recognition. Mm. I think that's even more important now because it's like a lot of things where now that some employees have gotten used to it, mm. they're going to expect it. Um, you know, they, they actually had we saw Gallup and other organizations say that engagement went up after, yeah. you know, a couple months after the pandemic. And, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of theories about why that was, but I think a consistent theory was, is that there was more communication, more check-ins, more, how are you doing more? We need to tell you what's going on so that you don't feel afraid, or at least, you know, where we're at and we can all be afraid together. Mm. All of that. Are we going to take that back? We got to. Yeah, and I think that um, another thing that the pandemic taught us, and it's kind of it's kind of repeating what you've said, but I think it's, you know, there is such a close tie in and overlap between work and home, and and people can't shut it off. I mean, they've spent a lot of energy doing it. We've spent mm -hmm. decades and generations of energy, you know, trying to fit into the workplace, but really, it's like how do you how do you create a place where humans can be humans? Uh, it sounds, sounds kind of like a crazy idea, but when I look back at my early career and how I spent so much energy and so much time, you know, getting into the suit, getting into the dress, you know, having my work human face on and then coming home exhausted, like times that by millions and millions of people. I mean, there's, there, there was a toll taken. And now I think people are, it's much more acceptable to say, you know what, we, we're, we're employing humans, so let's treat them like humans. I don't know why it came to me, but I was kind of like, of course I work for myself. So I've always, I've had control of my schedule over the last few years, which is part of thinking about, you know, if I were, how would I ever go back to corporate America? Cause I do what I want when I want, right. you know, <laughs> um, 
And, and if that means, and unfortunately that has mean for a lot of people, well, you extend your work day into the evening because I'm gonna go out and enjoy the sunny day today. I, you know, that, that can be unhealthy if you do that too much. Mm. But it, it kind of occurred to me yesterday, okay, so we've had all these people working from home, trying to manage life in a whole different world. And a lot of people have said, well, I can take that appointment at 2 p.m. or I can drop off my dry cleaning over lunch or I can, you know, attend my kids virtual school thing mm -hmm. during what would normally be considered the work day because I can work later in the evening because I have mm -hmm. my computer, my laptop, my internet, my computer, you know, all my company internet, everything at home. Again, not saying that's necessarily healthy to extend the workday. But now if those people go back into the physical workplace and they work for a boss who's butts in seats from, you know, eight to five. Uh, and if you leave, they're like, wait, why? You're going to take two hours to go to a doctor's appointment. That's not okay. Mm. It's going to be, I, again, I think you have people who will be, I've gotten used to this now. It made my life better to be able to do things when I need to do things versus scheduling everything for a vacation day or this or that or the other. And you probably will have some tension from people who would be like, well, but now we're back. You don't get to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is where, um, you know, I think about human-centered design a lot because uh, we don't use it enough. I feel like this is something we need to, especially use during this time, where you like put yourself in the shoes of Darla, the person who was working from home, you know, five days a week. And now we're having her come back. And what, what does that do for her? sense of autonomy and choice and I just I I don't think it's going to bear well for leaders who are not outcomes based and of course there's roles that you know you, like you said you need to put a widget in the screw and and you need to physically be there there's equipment um, you're in a lab you're in a plant you're in a uh, assembly line uh, but for the people who can work from home or have that who potentially have that opportunity for choice, taking that choice away is going to be, people are going to lose talent. You know, I like a lot of things that that negative for some companies is going to be a real positive for other companies. You know, if you think about before, again, I've been saying this for years, you know, think about skills around the world and how can you open up your mind to mm -hmm. filling skills versus filling a position in a location. You know, I said that before and I I realistically get pushback from people in, in the audience who would be like, my leaders would never support that or our jobs can't work from home. Well, a lot of those jobs, they figured out how to make it happen. And as you said, a lot of those people now, they will say, well, if you expect me to come back to the workplace, I'm just going to go somewhere else where I can continue to work virtually. What that means now is that really the recruiting landscape is wide open for talent. If you live in San Francisco or New York City where it's expensive and you know the talent that you want is in Iowa and before mm. they're like, I'm not moving my family off the farm that's been in my family for <laughs> generations to come to San Francisco and live in a you know one bedroom apartment. Uh, now they can say, I'm gonna stay right here on the farm and I can work for you. Right. And the companies that realize that, and I, I believe we're in a period of time where that realization has been made clear, mm. those who have been both open to it and some who have not, uh, it'll be interesting to see how many go back into the office and be like, well, we're all back in the office. I need to fill three positions and they all need to be located right here. And, and that's going to come into the hiring manager and be like, 
I checked LinkedIn and, you know, Angela's in Minnesota and she'd be great for this role, but she doesn't want to relocate. And the manager's like, bring me someone else. Uh, that's gonna yeah, be I, it, leaders are going to have a tough time with that. And it also, it, it excites me because I think there's also an equity play to a lot of this um, with geography, right? So we now are creating a level playing field for opportunities and your geography or your ability to move or uh, be able to afford a certain, you know, area in San Francisco, but you live in, you know, you live in uh, Naperville, Illinois. Um, it, it, it opens up a, an, um, it opens up a world of equity, I think, and it's going to help with that conversation. But again, if, if leaders or companies are not on board, they are kind of painting, painting themselves in a corner in a way. I think that's another interesting aspect to this. And I had a podcast guest on my podcast recently that was a diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging expert. And I asked her this question, like, you know, how she, she kind of calculated the, the need for diversity in a company, let's say, you know, just I'm not going to pick on any particular place, but let's say there's a place in America that mm -hmm. uh, the town is 90% white, Christian. Mm -hmm. um, whatever, rural. And so you have a company in that town. And when you talk about diversity and inclusion in that company, does that mean our numbers to say diversity numbers wise that we need to have 90% of our employees be white and 10% be something else because that reflects the diversity of our community. Mm. And she had a great answer for that. And I don't remember her name was Jennifer Ingram. If you want to look that episode up on my podcast, but um I think now we have the opportunity to add more diversity to our organizations, which we know is beneficial because even if our company is located in the 90% white community, more than likely our products and our customers are located um, in places that are more diverse as well as maybe in our community. So it's important for us to have other perspectives and other voices. Plus there's real value. You know, again, that outside perspective of uh, I never thought of that because you never had that life experience or whatever. So from a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective, now the excuse for that company before has been, well, how am I supposed to recruit, you know, diversity to our company because we don't really offer a place that they feel is welcoming or that matches with, you know, what they want for their family, whatever the reasons were. Um and it, and it would be hard. You know, I have, a, again, a coaching client right now that the location of their organization is in a predominantly white community. And so part of their difficulty in recruit, because it is an in-person organization uh, by, you know, just necessity for what they do. And part of their recruiting challenge for diversity, and they have some strategic goals around diversity, is the people don't want to drive through. They feel unsafe driving through that community because they look around and there's no one like them there. Mm. Um, and so that's always been a challenge. And so we've talked through about how that could be addressed in that type of environment to, to support their goals, but, and to make people feel more included and welcomed. But now if you had the opportunity to bring on diverse talent who didn't have to be located there, now that I'm saying this out loud, I mean, I guess that that creates a series of other probably mm. not problems, but but societal things we need to look at, you know, it's still not okay that someone would not feel comfortable coming to work in a place that doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. 
But if you're an organization that truly wants to embrace different voices and different backgrounds and whatever, and you want to add those, and that's a challenge, at least now you have a little bit more of an opportunity where some of those employees might be virtual. That was me thinking out loud. Feel free to shoot arrows at my thinking. (laughs) No, I... I agree. I think that it, I think it creates equity and it doesn't solve systemic issues. No, that's a better way to put it. It doesn't solve the systemic issues that we should all still be working on. Yes. So those things I think still need to be worked on. Part of the systemic issues that need to be solved, again, in an armchair opinion is exposure. Mm -hmm. Again, I listen, I, I said, listen to a lot of podcasts and I struggle like many people I'm sure do to not look around and say everyone who doesn't think like me is wrong (laughs) (laughs) and I also when I try to take a step further and say well I'm going to give a little grace and say you know I want to hear their perspectives I want to try to expand the news sources that I listen to I want to expand Mm. you know the 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 input that's coming into my world and then I hear someone and I'm like nope I don't need that (laughs) it's it's how our brain works yeah because it's just so wrong but the podcast I was listening to was like, this person was a news reporter and they had gone to a rally in a certain town with a certain political bent. And they're like, when you think about it and you look around, everyone here grew up in this community and they look around and they see everyone around them that they know mm-hmm. at this rally supporting this viewpoint, this candidate. And they feel like everyone they know are good people. So right. this is the way... To think it's the right way and, and so it's very difficult if you go in there and you start talking about the other side for them to look around and go you you may have a point there so you know not it's a political issue in that regard but i think that's the same with with cultural human issues too yes. we, we grow up maybe like i grew up in a, a southern community that I literally could count on one hand the African-Americans in my high school and I went to the largest high school in the state. Mm. Um, and I had never met a Jew. Well, I might've met one, but I didn't know I'd never met a Jewish person until I was in my thirties and I moved to Cincinnati. Um, you know, there were only certain types of churches in my community. So, you know, I personally valued and loved meeting the different perspectives. So I was open to it from a sense of this is new information and I like knowing more about you and learning about the world. Not everybody, you know, some people approach that from you scare me because you're different from me and I've never Mm -hmm. met anyone like you. And that's the same for a person who's African-American who grew up in a, you know, close-knit African-American community and Mm an African-American church and went to an African-American school and you know, then they go maybe get into a college or a university or take a job at a company where now mm. they're an only. Mm. Um, and, and again, that's a perspective that I'd love to hear more about, but it's also, we could learn from each other and both of those perspectives, you know, we could learn from if, if we hear people, see people, realize people aren't scary, um, realize that some of it is education you know, okay, well, tell me about when I said that and it offended you, I didn't intend that. Uh, again, another podcast guest of mine, Katie Osberger, we, I, I asked her that kind of difficult question because I felt like I had um, taken advantage of her at one point uh, mm. by sharing all of my beefs with her and not paying her for her, 
her work when she just called to introduce herself to me once. And so I asked her forgiveness on my podcast and she said, thank you for asking. She said, but it's important to remember, I recognized your intent. Mm. Or actually I might be saying that wrong, but it, it, it's not, a, it's about holding space for this is a teaching opportunity or an educational opportunity and also being open to that. So I took the whole conversation in another direction, but no, I disruptive in the future. We've got to consider these things and we've got to have these conversations, but I think a few things that I pulled from, um, that piece of the conversation, which is, uh, you know, right now we feel so disconnected, but you and I were talking about before we started is that um, a lot of people have pulled away just because of the, like the trauma <laughs> that we've all been through, right? Like we're just focused on us and our families and making sure we're okay. I, I have a, I have a hypothesis and you think you do too, that as things start to, um, as people get vaccines, as people can be together again, the world is going to open up even more because we've been using the Zoom calls and we've found other ways to connect with people um, and to expose ourselves to new things. So I, for one, am optimistic that that exposure that you're talking about is going to be a part of the future of work and mm -hmm. a part of the future of um, how we operate. Uh, we don't have to, you know, I think there was like a mental block in a way to say, oh, you're in New York. I'll see you when I, when I traveled to New York, right? Mm -hmm. Now we can have virtual coffee. We could have always done that, but yeah. you know, we didn't because we, for some reason, there's a mental block around it. We gotta, we gotta go see each other in person. So I think there's a connectivity piece. And I think a part of HR's role is really going to be crafting and curating the connectivity pieces of this. How do people connect? How do people connect in the new world of work, <laughs> um, which is much different than pre-COVID? I agree. I mean, the world of HR has always been full of opportunity. You know, I started 30 plus years ago thinking it was the place to have the most impact and influence in the organization. I still believe that, but I believe it's that times exponential now um, with all of the global and societal issues out there in the workplace that we're now more aware of in a lot of ways. Again, we're, we're more aware of people as actual humans with full lives outside of the work because of the last 12 months. We're more aware of um, the need for, it's not diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's more of opening up ourselves to understanding uh, and being intentional about that. You know, I think I've done things in the past, I thought intentionally to be more inclusive of people, but I realized it wasn't enough. Um, and so when I am able to get back to meeting people in person or being in person, when I do go to a conference or event, it's always opportunities for me to see a lot of my friends and I look around and a lot of my friends look like me, you know, and so who am I looking to add to my must-see list at the, yeah. you know, conference or event, or who am I making space for or inviting to dinner or, um, you know, it's, I think those are things that HR leaders now have to really bring into the workplace too. It's again, if you're the HR leader at a company that's all white in the middle of, you know, wherever, mm. can you use Zoom to introduce other perspectives to your employees? Can you hire virtual consultants or really expand the pool of who you think about who can provide a product or service because now we realize it can be done. 
Awesome. Well, that was such a perfect little bow. You tied the bow perfectly at the end of this podcast. Um, I think we talked about a lot today. I think we talked about, um, you know, I think, I think we did a good job um, defining disruption because I think it, it does come with this connotation of like, like you said, like just flipping everything over. And so disruption is challenging. It's questioning. It's um, taking advantage of uh the landscape we're in now. Uh, I think some other topics we talked about is, you know, DE&I, inclusivity, and how that's going to be like a, a hot topic for folks in HR. But um, but I just want to thank you so much, Jennifer, for taking the time. I know you do a lot of speaking, and um, but thank you. And um, I hope I'm on that must-see list at an upcoming conference so you and I can see each other again and maybe have some lunch. Or if you go sit alone at a table, you can, <laughs> you can imagine I'm going to show up. <laughs> Awesome. I'll just make sure that happens. (laughs) All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time and um, appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.